It was a phone call that I have been waiting on for years. Ever since I got a call about my dad's massive coronary years ago, I've been waiting on the call about my mom. Now, it wasn't in a defeatist way. It wasn't in a depressed way. It wasn't saying all hope is lost. It was just, it's the reality. Until Jesus comes, that's going to be true for all of us. Death is just as much a part of our lives as birth is. But it was something about that call. I knew when my, I picked up the phone. It, it was the day after New Year's. Arlene and I were trying to take a few days just to kind of re- refuel on Christmas morning uh, after our, whatever many Christmas Eve services we did, uh, 18, 19, I'm not sure how many it was. We drove up to Alabama. I say we, actually, she drove, and I was comatose on the way up and got to Alabama and was able to wish my mom Merry Christmas. Unbeknownst to us, but we thought it was possible for the last time. And spent a few days up there and then kissed her goodbye and came back here for the services that weekend. Blessed her, loved on her. But the call still came unexpectedly. And I get calls like that, we've all received them, but there's something about the loss of a parent. Especially somebody that has loved on me my whole life and discipled me along with dad. And I have mentioned to you, she was referred to as a giant by a lot of people. And it's so funny because of how small she was, but a woman of God, in fact, there's a quote that I came across when my dad died, and I've adjusted and modified it. It was anonymous to begin with, but it, it, it really resonated true as I was going through the shock on that day after New Year's. When she left us, it was as if a great tree had fallen in the forest of our lives and left a giant open space against the sky, a lonesome giant open space against the sky. And the bigger a person, not in their statue, but in their influence in our lives, the bigger the hole, the bigger the lonesome place against the sky. And last week, Arlene and I stayed at the graveside after everyone else had left. It was sunset. And I stood at a place where I had been with mom, and she actually had stood right where those flowers are, because the marker next to that is my dad's. And as I stood looking at that scene, praying, We talked a little bit, listened to a song by Chris Tomlin, We Shall Rise. I thought, does does the gospel have anything to do with that? Obviously, the answer is yes. The gospel is all over a scene like that. But in more ways than most people think, 
We think the gospel is about we have hope because she's died, but she's no longer encumbered. And she's risen. All of that is true. But the gospel has, has implications not just after the grave, but before the grave. If you got your Bible, turn to John 11. It's a passage that I looked at when I did one of the, hard, one of the hardest ser- sermons of my life. Actually, uh, mom's service tied with dad's as being the, the hardest and the easiest sermon that I've ever given. Just because of they, it was lives well lived for both of them. But John 11 was a passage that I spent some time in with her. If you uh, don't have a Bible, you can read on the screens up above. If you don't own a Bible, pick one up as our gift to you back in the in the uh, foyer at the welcome desk. So Lazarus was a friend of Jesus's. Mary and Martha. I mean, he hung around these three, stayed with them in their home. Word got to him that Lazarus was sick. Before he got back, he had died. So it was a very real, so parallel to that image that we were just looking at. It's if Jesus would have walked up in that moment, some of the dialogue would have been similar. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And now Jesus wants to clarify something with her. Listen carefully. He's wanting her to understand present tense resurrection as well as future tense resurrection. He says this, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Several words I want you to key in on. One is the word belief. It's not just religious opinion. We're all people of belief. We exercise belief every day, whether it's flipping a light switch and believing, trusting that it's going to turn the lights on, or we get on a plane believing that it will actually defy the laws of gravity and transport us somewhere else. We're all exercising various aspects of belief, and the belief in Jesus is just that trusting in Him to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves, and Jesus was pressing home belief. Again, not just religious opinion, but a belief that changes the cadence of our lives. That's one thing I want you to notice. But there are two others here. When you look at this text, he gives the typical implication of the gospel. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And everyone would say, that's the relevance of the gospel at a cemetery in moments when fresh flowers are in the grave of someone you love who knew Jesus. Yes, they're they're now, now alive. True. But there's another aspect of what he's saying. He not only says the one who believes in me will live even though they die, he also says whoever lives, present tense right now, by believing in me will never die. So the living happens both after the grave, 
but also before. You tracking? And it's something that was so important to Jesus. It was central to, to why he came. This whole notion of eternal life, it's qualitative. It's not just quantitative. It's not just a forever thing. It's a how we live, not just how long. And it's something that applies to us now, not just after the grave. John chapter 5, verse 24. It's a text we looked at before. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him, there's that believe again, whoever and is believing on a daily basis, putting my trust in what he said, who he said he was, what he said he came to do. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life, and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life at that moment. Jesus had an agenda, and it was to bring us back from the grave. It wasn't to make us religious. It wasn't to start a holiday. It wasn't to start a, uh, give us something to do on Sundays when the playoffs don't start till later in the day, and therefore it's convenient. He came for a very distinct reason, and it was a matter of life and death. His agenda was, as in his words, the renewal of all things, to bring life back to the cosmos, to bring the cosmos, to resurrect the cosmos and premiere in that human beings back from the grave. Started back in the fall, in the rebellion, in the garden, Genesis chapter three. God said, created us, and he said, okay, I've created you. Uh, Follow me, obey me, live. This is the path of life. You'll be fulfilling the original purpose you made for us. You take this path. But if you disobey me, if, you shall surely die. Satan comes along, mocks God, tells the man and woman, you shall not surely die. And that's a lie we always, we always eat up, even today. We think we can be normal, fulfilled human beings without God. And we propose to go down that path. They rebelled and they died. Hearts were still beating, lungs were still breathing. They were still image bearers, but they were flawed, broken, and dead. God elected in that moment, instead of destroying creation, we don't know why, but he elected to say, instead of destroying what I've made and starting over, I'm going to glorify myself by breathing life back into this deadness. Romans chapter five, verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more? So that's referring to Adam. How much more? Death reigns. So we live in the valley of the shadow of death. We have those moments of beauty and those moments where we get glimpses of, of the grace and the privilege and the gift of living. But at the same time, the headlines are filled and our hearts are filled on a daily basis reminding us things are not all as they ought to be. Death reigns. But... How much more will those who receive, in the midst of this death sentence, if we receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness, grace is God giving us not what we deserve but what we need. Righteousness is a status of rightness being restored into what we were intended for as human beings. Then we're enabled to reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Which is why Jesus says, my agenda is not to start a religion. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. On a daily basis, we are being robbed of the life and the flourishing and the thriving that we're intended for to the glory of God. It's not a self-improvement thing. It's us coming again under his leadership and his enablement. But the enemy wants to rob us of that. That's a direct reference to Genesis chapter 3 and what the serpent said. Jesus says, but I want you to understand something. I have come and get this. Understand 
understand this, unpack this, explore this, wrestle with this, apply this, deal with it in the context of community. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Have it to the full according to what was originally intended. And so that's the beauty and the power. And that's why I'm so excited about journeying with you in 2019 to say, let's unpack this. This vision that God has given us, engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. What's that look like? The disciples got it. They got this whole notion of what it means to to, to come alive. And John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, you've heard me talk about it before. He says, the reason I've written my gospel is that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the part A. That's the first, first reason he wrote his gospel. It's for the purposes of orthodoxy. Understanding Jesus is who he claimed to be. Trusting him, trusting in who he was in his identity. Fully God, fully man. Died on the cross, not as a martyr, but as a substitute for my sin. Rose again from the dead to validate that what he had done, he had accomplished. What he said he was going to do would be accomplished. Ascended to the Father. Takes us, invites us into a relationship with him to believe him as Messiah. And as a result, we, we come alive. We're made alive. His spirit inhabits us. John says, all of that's why I've written it. But also, also that by believing, you may have, not just on Sundays commemorating this, but on Mondays amplifying this, that you may have life in His name. That that life applies to not just how you do church, but do vocation and do relationships and do recreation and do funerals and do board meetings and do ball games. The life that Jesus is talking about, it's not just lung-breathing, heart-beating. It's the life of God. It's what we were originally intended for. And Jesus says, when you trust me, you come alive. Then it's a matter over the course of our lives to wrestle with this because I'm still in a fallen body and I'm still in a fallen world. So it's ebbing and flowing and it's figuring out. One thing that occurred to me at the graveside in that moment is that, you know, one mom's the most fully alive person here and she's not even here. No longer encumbered by a fallen body in a fallen world. In fact, what was in that casket was just her tent, her earthly tent that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. She was home. And she's fully alive without any sinful fallen encumbrances of this world. So we're going to spend some time saying, uh, asking that question this year, what's that orthodoxy vibrancy dance look like? It's not one or the other. Orthodoxy's the teaching, but a lot of churches will move into dead orthodoxy because they just talk about stuff. Let's get the religious facts down without living out the implications. A lot of you younger folks, you've smelled that and you've said, let me tell you something. I don't know that I care about your orthodoxy unless I can also see your vibrancy. Show me your vibrancy and man, I'll embrace the orthodoxy. 
It's one or the other, it's, not, it, it, it's both and, it's not one or the other. True vibrancy though can only come from orthodoxy. There are some folks that say, you know, let's do a little of Jesus but abandon the orthodoxy and just experience his life. You can't do it without the full orthodoxy, embracing the word of God, submitting to that. So vibrancy comes from orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, true orthodoxy leads to vibrancy. So what we're going to do over this year is let John teach us. During John's gospel and his epistles, he mentions this life the word life, about 71 times, it's translated in English. Of those 71 times, only about 15 are referring to heart beating, lung breathing. The, other, the rest are referring to this life of the gospel. So in about a month, we're going to start going through John's gospel, and we're not going to go through it quickly. He was an artist. He was passionate. He was deep. He was thoughtful. He was practical. He was relevant. One of his nicknames with his brother is a son of thunder. That makes you want to meet him right there, doesn't it? So I'd encourage you to start reading through John's gospel. And we'll get to it here in about a month. But until then, I want to give you a filter, a backdrop. A number of you have asked regarding this vision of fully alive. What's it look like? Could you spend a, a week or two on what is fully alive look like on a Monday. So that's what we're going to do. Now, what, what we're going to do it is use the alphabet. A, B. Yep, see, we, we have to sing it. We, you have to, you just can't say the, the letters. So, but that's all right. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J. That's 10 letters. Those 10 letters I'm going to let stand for 10 characteristics of being fully alive. They're not in any particular order. They're just there to help me remember and hopefully you. I've been practicing this. We talked about it as a staff a while back and uh, as a leadership team, staff starting to look at it. But uh, the past month and a half or so, including the days that I was grappling with my mom's death, I was, I was rehearsing this. Am I fully alive today? At the end of the day, was I fully alive? At the beginning of day, will I be fully alive? It will involve these and many more as well. But these 10 characteristics, and they're 10 words, they start with each of those letters, A, B, C, D, and so forth. And what we're gonna do over these next few weeks is take it a letter at a time. If you can remember the alphabet, you'll be able to remember these. And I, I could give them to you really quickly. Right now, I'm not going to. I don't want to spoil it for you. But it has really been helping me to say, to, to summarize, all right, what's this life of the gospel? What's it look like? So at the end of each weekend's teaching, I'm, I'm going to quiz you on the letters that we've covered. And at the end of uh, these, these several weeks, I'll quiz you on all 10 letters, and we'll hold one up, and you're going to give me the word, and uh, let, let's learn it together. You guys game for that? Okay, so we, we're going to wire up our seats. It's not the, the electrical stuff. It's not fully happened yet, but we'll get all the seats wired up, because if you miss the answer, there'll be a slight electrical shock, but we're going to give you a chance later. Just kidding. You guys ready? Dive in. Let's look at two letters today. And, and as Rebecca mentioned, we're going to let you out a little early for a very distinct purpose. Let you out of this room, uh, but not out of the building. It doesn't mean the doors are locked. It just means we want you to be in the foyer, and we'll tell you why. What does it look like to be fully alive? Being fully alive will involve, on a daily basis, living with a sense of awe. A, 
stands for awe. Awe, amazement, astonishment. What does it look like for me to live on a daily basis instead of just going through the the motions to be a man or a woman who's worshiping God, living with a sense of all of life worship and reverence and paying attention to this miracle of existence that God has given us, this miracle of of life. My mom was a voracious reader and she had quite a library and as I was there at Christmas, I was sitting in her library and I saw a book that she and I read together, actually, long ago by Henry Nowen called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's an exegesis, basically, of the gospel tutored by Rembrandt, the Dutch master in the 17th century who painted this masterpiece. We actually have a, a, a copy of it out in the foyer up on the wall. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go to the museum where that painting is on display. It's the State Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. We're sponsoring an orphanage over there and took a day to visit that museum. And it's the largest collection of paintings in the world, but there was one above all others. There are several I wanted to see, but this was the one. Because that book had meant so much to me, the gospel of grace and God's embrace of us. We're all prodigals. And I just wanted to spend some time with that painting. And my mom was more excited than I was that I was going to get to go over there and see it. And I've told some of you about this. I, I walked in. It's in a room by itself. The State Hermitage Museum is uh, where the royal, uh, uh, the, the royal Winter Palace was in Russia. And it's all these state rooms. And you walk in. And this painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son, is eight feet high, six feet wide, majestic. It's the only painting in the room. And you walk in in the back, and it's on this wall. There's a window over here providing light. You walk in a door here, and you walk out down there. Or you, it's not just one way, but that's where the entrances are. So I sat over on this side against the windowsill and just watched the people. I stared at the painting. I journaled a little bit. I prayed just regarding the grace of God in my life. I was there 90 minutes, two hours. I'd been there about almost 90 minutes. And a guy caught my, sometimes the room was empty. It was just Rembrandt and me and Jesus. And other times it was jammed full of tourists. And one of those moments when it was jammed full, a guy caught my eye. And the reason is he was taller than everybody else. He came in the, the room over to the side. So there's the painting. I'm over here. So he comes in right here. And what caught my eye was, he was an American. So how do you know he's American? Well, he had an NFL hat on, NFL shirt on. He had uh, uh, maybe NFL pants. I don't know. But he came in. And the reason I noticed him is because of the pace with which he was walking. He, there was no slow meandering. He walked in. And what was also unique and is noticeable is he had his camera phone up. And he just walked in through the room. He never slowed down, didn't glance at the Rembrandt, but that's all. He was just looking at the people in front of him and making his way through. He just was videoing it on his way by. I was so intrigued, I followed him. I thought, what in the world? You've come all the way to St. Petersburg, Russia to, to rush through a room with a video camera. But the problem is, I do the same thing in my life. 
I could be amused by what he was doing, but at the same time, I couldn't judge him because I do that. So many days, I don't live with a sense of awe. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says that God has created us, and as his images, we can notice something. We can notice that he's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So with every human being, not religious people, not church people, every human being has eternity in their heart and we see beauty, we notice it. It resonates with something deep within us. Our problem is the consequence of the fall, we don't understand it. We can't fathom. And a lot of times when you can't fathom something, you stop paying attention to it, which is why many of us never pay attention to some of those deep moments because we can't fathom it. But what happens when I come to Jesus? His Spirit takes up residence in me and something happens in my heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So we're gifted with a capacity by the Holy Spirit to start being able to live with a deeper sense of all. Doesn't mean we will, just because I've come to Christ and have now been made alive doesn't mean I'll experience that life. It's choosing on a daily basis to be fully alive, to live fully alive, which is why we're going over these 10 characteristics. And then we'll see the Gospel of John flood through this structure as we establish who we're going to be as the people of God in this next season. But it's decisioning that as individuals, as a community to say, I choose to pay attention, but we're equipped to live with awe. But so often we don't. Robert Capone, he wrote a pretty controversial statement. So Episcopal priest, he says this, he says, we're in a war in the church. He says, we're in a war between dullness and astonishment. The most critical issue facing Christians is not abortion, pornography, the disintegration of the family, moral absolutes, racism, sexuality. The critical issue today is dullness. We have lost our astonishment. The good news is no longer the good news. It is okay news. That's a provocative statement. Some of you won't agree with it, but it's at least worth looking at. Am I living my life with a sense of worship and reverence and awe and astonishment at all of creation and at the Creator? Am I seeing things differently? Jesus says in John 3, verse 3, He says, unless you're born again, I'll tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God. When I come alive, which is being born again, I start being able to see God's work in His kingdom in ways that I couldn't before. Will I engage with that on a daily basis in the midst of boardrooms and ball games? Will I engage with it on a daily basis in the midst of weddings or funerals? In the midst of mundane afternoons or spectacular events? Psalm 27, verse 4, the psalmist says, One thing I ask of the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord on Sundays when it's convenient. When? What's the next word? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord, what? 
that wasn't enough of you. Let's, uh, it's a word also. Why don't we all say all, and that way all will be participating in the word all, and we'll all get what is meant by all. Here we go. That I may gaze, uh, dwell in the house of the Lord all, all the days of my life. Highs, lows, ebbs, flows, Mondays, Thursdays. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord. To seek Him in His temple. Which is why T.S. Eliot, he said, you can, we need to choose the beauty of the Lord every day. A favorite poet of mine, he wrote this. He said, you are not here on this planet to just verify or instruct yourself or inform curiosity or carry report. You are here to kneel on a daily basis and saying, God, you're pretty amazing. The gospel's pretty amazing. The gift of life is pretty amazing. So what does A stand for? Oh, okay, no electrical shock, she did well. I'm so grateful for a team that's helped me fit this up. Let's cover this one. I'll look at this one again a little bit more in the future, but the letter E stands for engagement, which you can pick up easily looking at our vision stage, engaging people. To be fully alive is to live with a sense and a cadence of engagement that's volitional but also supernatural, that's spirit-enabled. This fully alive is about me engaging others. It's not just about me. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, that Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. When I live with a sense of engagement, I'm living with a sense of calling on a daily basis, that today is not just a day about doing some work and getting a paycheck. It's about me being somebody who's part of fallen creation, whose God is summoned back to life. And he said, I want you to live with a sense of awe, but I also want you to engage with my purposes today and ministry that is in all of life, at, the, at, at, at your office, at your school, in your play, engage, engage in, in, in evangelism, in discipleship, in justice, in compassion, in service. Engage. Be light. He says in Matthew chapter 5, you're the light of the world. You. That's why Richard Renee Stern said, you, you look, look around. Those people, the only Jesus they might ever see is you. Jesus is abiding within you. Engage them with the hands and feet of Jesus. All right, go back to Matthew 5, 14. He says, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Engage in the calling that you have. It's not just about us coming and staring at the back of somebody's head for, for an hour and a half on a weekend when it's convenient. It's about us being the people of God and engaging in the purposes of God, seeking first the kingdom. That's engaging with the kingdom and all these other things will be added to you. That's Matthew 6, 23. Engaging. Jesus says, engage is the light of the world. 
back in 1857, about 120 miles south of Sydney, Australia, a lighthouse was built in a place called Cape St. George. It was in a bay, St. Jervis Bay, that just has a lot of rocky outcroppings. It was just the death sentence for tons of ships. And so they decided to build the lighthouse. Alexander Dawson was the architect hired. He built it. And over the next 20 years, over two dozen shipwrecks occurred. The reason? He built the lighthouse in the wrong place. The ships that were needing the lighthouse, they couldn't see it because of where he put it. They ended up destroying it and building one in the right place. But they researched back in the late, in the 1890s, why did he build it where he did? And they surmised he built it there because that was the easiest place to build a lighthouse. It was closest to the quarry where he was going to get the stone. It was the place that was easiest from a foundation. To be the light of the world is not to do what's easy or most convenient. It's to do what I'm called to do. And Jesus said, I've made you alive. Now engage and give that life away. What a cool thing to be a part of.